So first, so so first of all, um, my name is my name is Malcolm. I'm one of the I'm one of the pastors here at Mosaic. Uh, if you have ever been here before, you know that we are deeply allergic to anything that could be seen as political. Um, that's a that's a joke. Um, but but I but but um, but I want us to pray this morning um, specifically because of the of the wars of the wars that we're seeing in the that we're seeing in the world. Um, I know it's, it's been a source of, 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 of anxiety, of fear, um, confusion, all these things. I want, to, I, want to lift this, I want to lift this up to the Lord this morning. So if you would, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning at a loss. We hear of wars and rumors of wars, especially the escalating war in your son's homeland. As servants of a Jewish man born in a land we now call Palestine, we mourn this morning. We mourn the casualties of human war, an endeavor that we have never engaged in justly. We mourn the victims of Hamas's attack on, on October 7th. We mourn the casualties of colonial violence. We, we mourn the casualties of lust for land. We mourn the casualties of lust for power. We mourn the deaths that continue to mount as the logic of revenge and retaliation saturates international policy. Lord, we mourn the deaths that inevitably follow when groups and states mobilize genocidal language. We mourn the deaths of both Israelis and Palestinians at the hands of those who believe that the best way to defeat one's enemy is to kill them. Lord, teach us to stand now and always where you stand, with the poor, with the oppressed, and with the persecuted. And teach us to stand against those who would seek to kill and to exploit them. Lord, you are a God of peace, and so we pray first and foremost for peace. That your kingdom would come and that you would bring peace with it. That where we do not see ways to peace, or that you would make those ways such that no more blood might be shed. Make us a people of peace in a warmongering nation and world. Make us peacemakers in a world of violent peacekeepers. For as your son reminds us, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Drive deep into us the ethos of your cross. Make us a people who look to suffer before we look to kill. Because we know that you alone are the arbiter of life and of justice. Holy Spirit, be with us. We pray these things in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. If you are willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. A reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 66. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things and so they came into being? Declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. 
But whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a person. And whoever offers a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood. And whoever burns memorial incense is like one who worships an idol. They have chosen their own ways, and they delight in their abominations. So I also will choose harsh treatment for them, and will bring on them what they dread. But when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, no one listened. They did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your own people who hate you and exclude you because of my name have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. Yet they will be put to shame. Hear the uproar from the city. Hear that noise from the temple. It is the sound of the Lord repaying his enemies all they deserve. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. This is it. We are finishing the book of Isaiah. Woo! Was anybody here October 16th, 2022? See, a year ago. It took a whole year and we went through this book. Don't, the, our, next, our next series, I'm, I'm gonna talk about it in a, in, a, in a little bit, but we're gonna spend just as much time in that series and it's much shorter. Um, at least the text is much shorter. It's gonna be great. Oh, it's gonna be the best. So, um, as, we, as we think back on this, on this past year of going through the book of Isaiah, uh, it's, a big, it's a big book. Uh, and we've been in it for a while, and so, it's, and so it's easy to forget the context. It's easy to forget. Uh, it's easy. It's easy to forget these sixty-five chapters that we've been through, and it's easy to forget what the people of God have been through in that time. The Book of Isaiah, and really, and really, the whole of the Scriptures are asking this question: Where is God, and what does it mean for God to be with us? Is God with us when we worship Him right? Is he with us when we're on the right side politically? Is he, is he with us when we wield the most military might? Is he with us when we feel it? I want to address the question of what constitutes God's presence. And I want to address this back and forth that we've especially seen throughout the book of Isaiah. This back and forth between God's wrath and his love. God's brutality and his affection. And that makes, us, that makes a lot of us uncomfortable because the, the, it's often the case that the only context where we meet both brutality and affection in the same person uh, is, in, is, in, is in abusive situations. And God is not that. And so this understanding of God's presence, his, his wrath and his love is going to hopefully challenge and comfort us. So let's take a look at the text. Isaiah 66, 1 to 4 is about the temple. The temple in Jerusalem was a physical reminder to the people of God that he was with them. But because of their idolatry, their greed, their exploitation of the poor, the Lord takes the temple from them by allowing imperial powers to take them over. And so when the temple is destroyed by Babylon and the people are taken into exile, their one question is this, where is God now? And God's answer is in verse 1. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? God's answer in this text is that he was never really sustainably in the temple. In fact, what kind of house could you build for a God who reigns in heaven and who has already made everything? No, God doesn't want a house from his people. So what does he want? Well, verse 2. 
These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. What does that mean? Well, humble and contrite in spirit give a certain image. But what about the fact that those words, humble and contrite, can also be translated as poor and stricken? That is, God especially looks upon those who are poor and stricken of spirit, those who suffer, those whom the world has discarded, those who even in those circumstances look to the word. Jesus would repeat this sentiment in the Beatitudes, especially in Luke when he says, blessed are you who are poor, blessed are you who are hungry, for you will be filled, blessed are you who weep, for you will be comforted. The ones whom the Lord has special care for and the ones whom the Lord calls us to have special care for are the poor and the afflicted. In fact, as Jesus would also affirm, that's actually where God is, but we'll get there later. Let's go back to the book of Isaiah. Verses three and four describe rebellion. Whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a person. And whoever offers a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood. And whoever burns memorial incense is like one who worships an idol. They have chosen their own ways, and they delight in their abominations. See, God has said this elsewhere in Isaiah as well, that that the sacrificial system is not about earning God's love. And if you treat it like that, it becomes an abomination. God doesn't want a people who see worship as flood insurance. He wants a people who recognize that worship is necessary to their lives. He wants a people who recognize that that the presence of God is their only source of joy, their only source of fulfillment, their only source of peace, their only source of power. But the history laid out in the book of Isaiah and throughout the scriptures is that many of his people and much of the world refuses to live in that way. And so you hear these words of anger, especially throughout this chapter. Verse 6, hear that uproar from the city, hear that noise from the temple. It is the sound of the Lord repaying his enemies all they deserve. Now note that the noise comes from the city and from the temple. That is, the Lord is paying special attention to those who claim to be close to him. If there is one thing that the Lord cannot stand, it is hypocrisy. You get the scary verses, 14 to 16. When, when you see this, that is, when you see the coming redemption that the Lord is bringing, which we're going to talk about in a second, when you see this, your, your heart will rejoice and you will flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but his fury will be shown to his foes. See, the Lord is coming with fire and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment on all people and many will be those slain by the Lord. Now, as intense as that is, it gets even more intense. And the really scary text is, is, actually, is actually verses 22 to 24, the very last verses in this book. As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. From one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord, and they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The, bur- the fire that burns them will not be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. Mic drop, end of book. That is hardcore. But 
he's saying that it's not going to be enough that rebels to the Lord's will die. The Lord is basically saying they're going to keep on dying. And this makes us, this makes many of us very uncomfortable. But it's the word of the Lord, and the word of the Lord includes his wrath against sin, against oppression, and against whoever aligns themselves ultimately with those powers. But throughout this chapter and throughout the book, you have these amazing pictures of restoration, these amazing descriptions of God rescuing and restoring his people. Verses 10 to 13, rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. All you who love her, rejoice greatly with her. All you who mourn over her, for you will nurse and be satisfied at her comforting breasts. You will drink deeply and delight in her overflowing abundance, for this is what the Lord says, I will extend peace to her like a river and the wealth of nations like a flooding stream. You will nurse and be carried on her arm and dandled on her knees as a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you. And you will be comforted over Jerusalem. Now, I'm not going to lie. I, I, I can't think of the last time I saw the word dandled. But it's a very specific thing. It's, it's, it's what you do with a baby when you, when you bounce them up and down on your leg. It's an image of endearment, an image of tender love. You feel that, you feel that, like, that, that whiplash of the story of the redemption of the world and worldwide peace and the absence of violence, war, and oppression, the, the thorough flourishing of the people of God, this, these images of nursing and, and dandling a baby. And then on the other side, you've got the bloody, unrelenting destruction of the unrepentant and all those who pridefully rebel against Yahweh. Back and forth, back and forth. This is the vision, not only of the scriptures, but especially specifically of the prophet Isaiah. Because Isaiah is talking to a people who through their greed and their pride said with their lives, we don't need you, God. All we need is our stuff and our power. And God responds to that with judgment. But that same God does not give up his original purpose for humanity. When God created us, his intention was to bring us into the divine life. God created us as an overflow of his own love, and he, and, 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 and he created us so that we might be in relationship with him. But that love shows up in some complicated ways. I think many of us feel this whiplash between brutal judgment and affection because we think that we're being told that wrath and love are two eternal attributes of God. They are not. So God is love. We know this to be true. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this, in this, in this, in this eternal relationship of, of mutual indwelling and love. God's relationship with us is, is, is an overflow of that, of that love. But God's wrath is what we see when we see God's love, when, when we see God's love poised against sin, oppression, and death. Because those are things that God does not play games with. And they are things that he has promised to ultimately, mercilessly destroy. And that's, what, and, that's, and that's what we want. Or at least, I mean, I think this is what we tell ourselves that we want. We, we, we want a world without war. We want a world without violence. We want a world where no one goes hungry, where no one goes homeless, where no child dies of disease, where no one is sexually taken advantage of, where, where there's no grief, where there's no illness, where there's no oppression. That's the world that we want. But the issue is that our lives are often bound up with systems that make all of those things possible. 
This is like the argument that Matthew Desmond makes in, in, in his book, Poverty by America, that, the, that one of the reasons why there's so much poverty, particularly in this country, is that the poverty of some is profitable to others of us. That is, if we really wanted to invest in poverty abolition, it might mean that some of us would be a little less well-off than we are right now. And for some of us, that's a risk that we're not willing to take. But what I also mean is that when we, when we align ourselves with things and entities that kill and exploit, we place ourselves in what I like to call the splash zone of God's judgment. And we don't like that language because it, it's, it suggests imprecision. And if there's one thing that we know about our own anger, it's very, very imprecise. Half the time when we're angry or frustrated, we don't even know what or who to be mad at, so we just lash, at whoever, we just lash out at whoever's closest. And that's not the God that we serve. No, when I, when I, when I narrate this, 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 this splash damage of divine wrath, I want, you to, I want you to keep in mind, God doesn't aim his anger at you. He aims at what is ultimately seeking to kill you. And if you cling tightly to that thing, if you cling tightly to your sin, if you cling tightly to your exploitation or your ignoring of your neighbor, then you're going to face the same fate as that sin. It's like you, it's like you jumping in between God and what he is seeking to judge. God in Isaiah 66 is trying to tell the people what he's tried to tell them throughout the entire book. Cling to me and you'll be safe. Cling to anything else and you'll perish. Don't cling to the temple as the temple. Don't cling to the sacrificial system as the sacrificial system. Don't cling to your land. Don't cling to your, don't cling to your possessions. Don't even cling to your relationships. They're all good. All those things are good things, but none of those things are ultimate. The only ultimate thing is God. And clinging tightly to anything else such that you, your, 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 your hands cannot be pried from it, that is what God calls sin. And it opens one up to destruction. It's, it's as God says in Isaiah 66 too, that those are examples of choosing your own ways and delighting in your abominations. But he doesn't just say this in Isaiah. No, Jesus repeats the same message to you and I as Christians, as people who have placed their faith in Christ and who seek to live lives of repentance as a small excursus. So we're about to do a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And I told a colleague that we went through Isaiah over the course of a year, and he was shocked. But he was even more shocked when I told him that we're going to do the Sermon on the Mount, which is three chapters, minimum five months. Minimum. If we could do it in a year, that'd be great. But I don't know if, I don't know if we're ready for that. It's going to be great. Oh, it's going to be so good. Oh, it's going to be so good. And I could wait until then to do this, but I'm going to do this now. So, uh, Matthew 6.33. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus utters some, some, some powerful words that ought to drill deep into the minds of every Christian. This is what he says in Matthew 6.33. Seek first his, that is the Father's, kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, that is everything that you need, because he's been talking about like food and water and stuff, all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus and Isaiah are saying the same thing to the people of God. Focus. Focus on two things. Focus on the reign of God and focus on God's righteousness. Focus on what it means for God to reign in your midst and focus on what it means for you to be an ambassador of that reign in every aspect of your life. 
So you can know that if you proclaim faith in Christ, if you live these lives of repentance, everywhere you go, God goes with you with the, by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Christ reigns over and in you. And that's not something that you look forward to. That's something that is true of you now. You're, you're, we're, we're all waiting for the day when, when Christ's reign is clear over the entire earth. But you know now what it is for Christ to reign in and over you. And this is why I think it's best for us to understand sin, not just as a thing that we do, but as a power, as a rival king. So when, so when Paul in Romans is describing what the resurrection means for us, he tells us that by faith in Christ, we died with Christ, and as death no longer masters him, it no longer masters us. And Paul's language in Romans 6, 11 to 14 sticks in my mind. He says this, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. So this is the language of activity. Offer every part of yourself to God because, according to Paul, you can by the Spirit. And that verse is an encouragement. Don't let sin reign. Don't walk back into those chains. What he's saying is that, look, we offer our eyes as instruments of wickedness. And what he's, and what he's not saying is, okay, well, don't, don't look at those things that tend towards sin. That's not, that's not the primary application of this verse. The primary application is offer your eyes to the Lord. When your eyes are tempted to look towards wickedness, turn them toward the Lord. When your mouth, when your mouth is tempted to be a tool of wickedness, when you're tempted to offer your mouth as a tool of wickedness, the, the response is not just, okay, don't say those things. No, 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 no. Turn your mouth to the Lord. When your hands... When you, look to, when you look to offer your hands as instruments of wickedness, the Lord doesn't just say, move your hands from there. No, he says, turn your hands toward your neighbor. When your feet take you to places that turn you into instruments of wickedness, the Lord doesn't just say, don't go to those places. The Lord says, take your feet to your neighbor. Because the issue, this image of chains, this image of sin reigning, the reason why the Christian remains in chains is because the Christian continues to walk into them. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, don't let sin reign. Christ reigns over you. Consider that thing, that, that, that part of you that you have handed over to sin, that you have allowed sin to reign. I pray that you would hand it over to the Lord because he is calling us to cling to him and to him alone. Why? Because of what he has done, because of what he is doing, and because of what he has promised to do. Well, what has he done? Well, he's promised from the beginning of creation to establish humankind as what are called his, his vice regents, people who are going to rule alongside him and steward the heavens and the earth. But they forfeited, Adam and Eve forfeited this privilege by sin. And in that moment, the Lord did not kill them. He gave them another chance by his grace. When he gathered a people, freed them from slavery to Egypt, and, and told them, live as a people who are under my reign, and they said, no, well, you know what, we want a king just like everybody else. 
The Lord did not destroy them then and there. He continued his plan to send his son to be the king that they needed and to restore to them the life that they forfeited. When the people insisted on idolatry and oppression, he took their land, he took their king, he took their temple, but he did not take his presence. Instead, he determined to be present with them in a different way, a better way. And this is exactly what Christ has done for us. Emmanuel, God with us. When, 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 when the Son of God took on flesh, when he lived a perfect life indwelt by the Spirit, when he died and when he was raised, Christ not only showed us what true humanity is, but he invited us into it by faith. God truly walked with us. And so God did the hard work. He told us and showed us not only how we can be set free, but also what that freedom looks like. And how we can seek to set other people free. How? By walking the life of the cross. A life of love best, best exhibited through suffering. But if that's what he did, well, what's he doing now? Well, after Christ's resurrection, he, his resurrection and his ascension, he didn't just leave his people alone. No, he sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in, to teach, and to shape his people. Because he knew that his people need him in order to obey him, so God gave us God's very self. And we get, these, we get this, this, this magnificently encouraging text in 2, in, in 2 Peter sorry, 1.3. Peter says this, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. If you are united to Christ by faith, you have everything you need for a godly life. That's what the word says. And so, and so what is the spirit doing in every Christian? Well, he's enabling you to add to that faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love this is what the spirit is working in each and every one of you and this is what god has promised to do in and through his people because the other thing that god is doing is he is preparing you what's he preparing you for you may ask well we live in a world that resists his reign we live in a world full of domination, full of exploitation, full of hatred, debauchery, envy, greed, all these things that the Lord sets himself against. But unless we see our neighbors not as enemies, but as people who are subject to those same powers and principalities that you and I were before the Lord plucked us, we can't love them. And so what the Lord wants to do, the Lord wants to build in you that fruit so that you can bear witness to the reign of God everywhere that you go regardless of the consequences. Because the thing is, when you live consistent lives of peacemaking, of, of love, of meekness, and all these things, that is, there, that, is the, that is the worst, that is the worst way, that's the worst way to seek power if you're seeking power. It's also the worst way to seek uh, acceptance because you become, a, you become a threat to these broader, to these broader structures of domination. But the Lord is preparing us to live faithfully in the world. But most importantly, the Lord is preparing us for what he's about to do. The last two chapters of Isaiah are concerned with what the last few chapters of the, book, of, of the Bible are concerned with. That is the new heavens and the new earth. And here's the thing about it. You and I need to be ready. 
Why? Because the primary characteristic of the, of, of the new heavens and new earth is that God is there, unfiltered. And, the, and, and, and here's the thing about the unfiltered presence of God. It's going to hit us in one of two ways. It will either be an unspeakable, mind-shattering, existence-destroying terror on one side, or it's going to be a joy so great that you're going to realize why you had to die and be given a redeemed body for you to be able to experience it. And I desperately want the latter for me. I desperately want that for each and every one of you. Isaiah wanted it for the people, but the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit want it for you too. They want to shape in you a spirit that's poised for a heavens and earth without violence, without pain, without grief, without sin, without death, and without the devil. So what does that mean for us here? Well, this world that, the, that, that God is not only shaping but intending to bring is what's known as the kingdom of God. And in describing that, he's describing the way that his people are supposed to operate now. That is, we have been called as a community to resist sin, death, and the devil, and to do so together. It means that we as a community are called to support one another materially. We're called to seek to reaffirm one another as children of God. We're, we're called to drag one another out of the sharp clutches of sin. We're, we're, we're called to build one another up when we're discouraged. We're called to comfort one another when we mourn. We're called to point one another to Christ when we, when we begin to lose hope. We're, we're called to point one another to the cross when we get too prideful. We're called to point one another to the kingdom and to God's righteousness when we start to get greedy. Because the gates of hell will not and cannot prevail against the people of God. Why? Because God is with us. Dear brother, dear sister, when you live lives of faith and of repentance, when you live lives in solidarity with the poor and the needy, when you live lives of love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, these are, these are descriptions of what it means to live by the Spirit. These are descriptions of what it means to walk in step with the Spirit. In other words, that's what it means for God to be with you. Not just in the omnipresent sense, where God is everywhere. We know that. God's everywhere. But, but the kind of presence with God that we want is when God is with us intimately, when he's, when he's with us in a life-giving way, when he's with us in the way that he has always wanted to be with us. And that intimacy is just a taste of what you're going to experience in the new heavens and new earth, where the throne of God won't be up there anymore. The throne of God will be in the city, that is the city where we will be. The new heavens and new earth where, 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 where we will behold God's face. When we'll see Jesus, and as John tells us, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. The new heavens and new earth where, where, where there won't be any night and there won't be any darkness and we won't need a lamp and we, won't, and we won't need the sun because the Lord God will be in our midst suffusing every element of our existence with life-giving light and joy. As Curtis Mayfield said in his song, People Get Ready, there is no hiding place against the kingdom's throne. God will be all in all. So get ready. Wake up, reminding yourself of that future. 
Go to bed reminding yourself of that future. Live your lives reminding yourself, reminding one another, and reminding your children, reminding your families, reminding the people who you come into contact with of not only what God has done, not only what God is doing right now, but perhaps most importantly, what he has promised to do. Let's pray.